Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. With these words, Christ called for forgiveness for those who crucified him. And in the midst of his torment, <clears throat> he didn't call for retaliation or retribution, though he could have. He called for compassion, for grace. And with these words, Jesus tells us all, forgiveness is always possible. I admit that I struggle with these words and with following Christ's example here. I am human, and like many of you, I'm stubborn. I hold grudges. I've been hurt, and that hurt often makes me hurt others. I know I'm not alone in that. And then I think of the inherent violence in racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all frequently justified by this sort of straight white male vision of, of who God is. And then I ask myself, what even is forgiveness? What does forgiveness actually look like for me when I know that my identities and the identities of my loved ones are so often perceived as a threat? Is it possible to forgive such an overwhelming, deeply rooted hurt when the perpetrators so often just don't know any better? Do I even want to? I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to have a good answer during this meditation, but I prayed on these questions often during the Lenten prayer challenge and have come to the following conclusions for now. Maybe my own brand of forgiveness doesn't mean complete Christ-like absolution for these sins. Maybe it just means not responding to dehumanization with more dehumanization. To say to those who have hurt me that my humanity and all of its flaws recognizes yours and all of its flaws. We are all hurt by oppressive structures. We are all imprisoned by its shackles. And I cannot wait around for you to disabuse yourself of the patriarchy, the gender binary of white supremacy, in order for me to start living my free, unencumbered life. And instead, I hope that those who suffer from these, these issues eventually find love for themselves that isn't predicated upon hatred for others. I have denied people forgiveness in the past when they haven't earned it. And I've granted it only when I truly meant it. But I guess I'm saying that forgiveness doesn't need to be an either or black and white sort of proposition. There can be an area in between that mirrors what Christ wants for us all. Responding from a place of internal peace. Even when you don't fully forgive someone for the evils they commit. Hoping that eventually the people who have hurt you find their way towards righteousness and justice. And maybe we do that by talking by organizing, by combating disinformation, so that people learn from their actions and they can do better. That's an act of love for your fellow humans. That's a path towards forgiveness that I feel that I can follow in Christ's image. For in the midst of his anguish and his profound suffering, Christ shows us that it's possible to look at someone who has deeply, deeply hurt you and perform, however small, an act of love.
And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says these words to one of the two criminals who is being crucified with him. I am intrigued with the concept of paradise and understand that it's described in religious terms as a place of rest and refreshment in which the righteous dead enjoy the glorious presence of God. Another description says, paradise is a place of exceptional happiness and delight, a place of peace and prosperity. I accept these descriptions of paradise by faith. The first, as a place in the heavenly realm and eternal. The second, as a place in both the heavenly and the earthly realms, with the earthly realm, realm being transient. Both realms being extensions of the mind of God. Today, I think about the idea of paradise as it exists on earth. Referring to God's creation of earth in the beginning, it is written in Genesis that God created the heaven and the earth. From this, I believe that most likely earth bears some semblance of paradise, like heaven, so God must intend for all creation to live into and experience lives of happiness, delight, peace, and prosperity in the here and now, and on some level. Then I ask myself, why isn't this so? And I've been asking myself this for a very long time. Strange but true, this lingering question is triggered by the words of one of my favorite songs, Another Day in Paradise. I listen to the words intently, and although it might be considered as music that is too secular for Good Friday, I hear a sacred message that alludes to Jesus' words and message in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 25. The songwriter addresses one of the many social dilemmas, homelessness, and it touches me deeply whenever I hear him sing. The, some of the words say, today is just another day for you and me in paradise. Just think about it. Just think about today's paradise for the marginalized among us, for the refugees and those displaced by war, for the endangered species among us, for the care, or lack thereof, of creation. Another day in paradise for you and me. Another day in paradise lost for too many of God's creation and God's people without some sense of the happiness, delight, peace, prosperity, and human dignity, which is God's gift to everyone. Today I ask myself, 
What would Jesus say or do about paradise here on earth today? And if I feel overwhelmed, it must be that I am dwelling for too long in the mindset of concern, where one tends to worry a lot and do very little. I ought to be proactive by moving into the mindset of influence and engage in charitable works that address some of these injustices. In other words, to love my neighbor. I'm reminded of organizations and institutions to do so, such as Episcopal Relief and Development, here at All Saints, the Racial Justice Initiative and the Refugee Resettlement Project. And as a deacon, I try to live into the call of the diaconate. Overarching all of these is the baptismal covenant. Serving in community in the best possible way to restore paradise here on earth, honoring the life and ministry of Jesus and continuing his work. I believe that throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus modeled paradise for us and is asking us to do today to continue God's will on earth. This may be a sneak preview into what paradise would be like in heaven. God in Jesus offers paradise on the heavenly realm to the dying criminal, as that one is described. God in me, in us, the body of Christ, empowers us to offer paradise on this earthly realm to those among whom we live. And so today I pray, truly, Father, I pray that I can participate with God's people in the restoration of paradise here on earth, here and now, as it is in heaven, as it is according to your will. Amen. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her. He said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. John 19, 26 and 27. If you've been here with us today since noon, you also heard these words chanted during our Good Friday liturgy and spoke them at the Stations of the Cross. Although this is the third time today these words have echoed up to the high ceilings of our beautiful church, the scene itself is unique to John's Gospel. It's absent from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the Passion. Things get even more interesting. You may have noticed that this disciple isn't named the author's choice to withhold the full identity of this disciple set off centuries of scholarly debate and imaginative speculation. 
Now, for thousands of years, church tradition has taught that this disciple is St. John, apostle, evangelist, author of the very gospel account in which these words appear, receiver of divine revelations at the island of Patmos, the person pictured in stained glass over my left shoulder, farthest to my left. But for this meditation, let's explore the text's silence on this important detail. Who is the beloved disciple? He appears throughout the narrative in this gospel, especially at the moments that are most precious to our Holy Week traditions. Last night, Maundy Thursday, we celebrated the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist. According to this gospel, the beloved disciple was there, literally reclining on the breast of Jesus, the same phrase used elsewhere in the text to describe the relationship between Jesus and God. The gospel writer must have decided that the only way to convey the level of intimacy between Christ and this disciple was to make a, frankly, impossible comparison. But the point is clear. Jesus and the beloved disciple are about as close as two people can be. And when we're told of the women followers of Jesus who stick with him to the bitter end of his crucifixion, when the familiar men who followed him are nowhere to be found, other gospel writers place this loyal group at a distance from the cross. John's gospel brings them right to the foot of the cross, like we replicated earlier when we walked to the stations. And the beloved disciple is there too. And so here we are in Jesus's final moments, and this gospel writer brings us as readers right to the foot of the cross, close enough to assault our senses. Sighs, cries of agony, sweat and blood mixed with dust. Looking up from below at God incarnate, nailed to a cross. This is our religion's most powerful imagery, passed down over millennia and reworked and reinterpreted along the way. Therefore, it's sometimes difficult to approach without a lot of preconceived notions. But that's where this gospel writer has given us a precious gift. By anonymizing the beloved disciple, it opens the possibility of identifying ourselves with the beloved disciple, of finding a way to Christ. Lest we forget, this idea is not complete without Mary, the mother of Jesus, the God-bearer, there with the beloved disciple at the foot of the cross. In one of Christ's final requests, the beloved disciple takes Mary as his mother, and Mary takes the disciple as her son. The next sentence in the text is, and from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves in terms of what comes next in the story, something about a tomb, and a stone, and a miracle. The beloved disciple is there throughout. When you spot him in the coming days as we resolve the story, think back to this moment, identifying with him at the foot of the cross. Hearing these words, woman, 
here is your son, and here is your mother. I like to think that Mary and the beloved disciple would have cared for one another after Christ's crucifixion, regardless of whether Christ had explicitly directed it. I can hear them saying, to put contemporary words in their mouths, she's like a mother to me, or he's like a son to me. But as Episcopalians, as liturgical Christians, we know the meaning-making power of a proclamation when it's spoken aloud. Amen. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These words from Mark, chapter 15, verse 34, raise a lot of heavy questions that are not easily answered. Why has God forsaken Jesus? What does it mean to be forsaken? Is there a purpose or meaning to be found in suffering? After being arrested, mocked, tortured, and nailed to a cross, Jesus spoke these words in the final moments before his suffering ceased. I can imagine the sense of betrayal that Jesus might have felt in this moment. <clears throat> Despite doing all that had been asked and expected of him, in the end he was left all alone to suffer his fate, abandoned by his followers and even by God. I think we can all relate to this feeling on some level, devoting all of ourselves to something or someone, only to be left with nothing in the end getting laid off after years of dedication to a company, watching a relationship fall apart despite making yourself open and vulnerable, falling ill even though you've taken good care of your body. What is the point of all our efforts if they can be so easily undone or reversed by forces outside of our control? It is tempting here to fall into the trap of despair. Why bother doing the right thing if it doesn't guarantee the right outcome? But this assumes a lot. The first assumption is that we can never know what the right outcome of any situation should be. The second assumption is that a right outcome even exists in the first place. And finally, this assumes that the end result is the ultimate purpose of any action. But this is not the case. The action itself is the purpose. Jesus acted as he did, despite knowing how it would end for him. We see in his final moments that he was not without fear or doubt, and yet he persisted in doing what he knew to be right. It did not lessen his suffering in the end, but that was never the point. This is certainly a confounding verse. In this moment, Jesus, who has mostly been shown to possess an otherworldly capacity for composure and restraint, breaks down in a painfully relatable moment of humanity. After navigating suffering, death, and all other manners of human frailty with such grace and patience, it can be quite a shock to see him so uncertain in this moment. However, I also believe there's some measure of comfort that can be derived from these words. To know that one with the divine insight as Jesus still, had to, still experienced the same fears and doubts as we do is to know that these ordeals are part of a plan that goes far beyond our human experience and understanding. Whether or not this knowledge makes such difficult experiences any easier, 
in the moment is another story. But in the long run, there is solace to be found in the fact that there is purpose behind all the happenings of our lives, both good and bad. We shouldn't, however, take this as an excuse to overlook or whitewash suffering. We must keep equal space in our hearts and minds for pain as we do for joy. To do otherwise is to minimize the gravity of Jesus' anguish and the anguish of others. That God has a plan does not absolve us from our responsibility to empathize with the weary and downtrodden, to sit with them in their despair, and to act whenever and wherever wherever we can lessen their suffering. Amen. We already know our bodies are like oceans, with salt and water coursing through us. We're told the same percentage of water that covers the planet nearly matches our own watery makeup. Whenever I forget that I'm created in the image of the divine, I try to remember shallow creeks collecting all their light or lakes that yield to us peace, however temporary. Even the city's chaotic river now rehabilitated by oysters that filter out pollutants and return our wildlife to us and seas so salty they sting and oceans that beat like a pulse. If you've ever had a panic attack, and I hope you haven't and never will, you may reach for physical or things to ground you, physical things, even the movement of your body or the breath you carry with you. And if you're me, you'll reach for the water you keep on you, always. A man once tried to tell me it was my crutch. He didn't really know me, had just met me, but felt comfortable saying that when I joked about my emotional support water bottle. Sometimes people do this to appear invulnerable, maybe, when of course there's great wisdom that comes from being vulnerable. Look at Jesus in his vulnerability when he said, I thirst. And to be fair, I shouldn't have been glib about my water. It means something to me. And also it means something to every living thing on this planet, a planet increasingly at risk of becoming desert, of parched tongues and threats to vulnerable communities. This is our infrastructure this roar of the ocean in us. I think of Carvin's Creek, um, Carvin's Cove in Southwest Virginia, around the corner from the women's college I attended, sheltered by the Blue Ridge Mountains. This nearby cove was quiet and still the day I went with a friend where we rented a double kayak. I had never kayaked and my friend, far more type A than I am, was trying her best to be patient as I clumsily navigated the water. When my oar finally did connect in a way that felt smooth and right, I felt it all the way through my body, as if I had turned completely into a current of my own making, surging and dissolving, disembodied and free. I'd become part of the water. But what are we when we're denied the water? Jesus said, I thirst. Imagine the pain he was experiencing and then the thirst driving him further into an uncomfortable bodily awareness where his autonomy has been compromised, his body bound. To be able to emerge from that physical desert means to say, I thirst, which is actually a request. But instead of the clean, cold water he deserves, 
Jesus is given wine vinegar as prophesied by a sad song. For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. It is not right. But it is enough for him to wet his lips and speak his final words. The other week, I was somewhat mysteriously up all night with the most parched tongue I've ever had. No amount of water could help me. I had already begun reflecting on this meditation only to be driven directly into the story, almost feverish with thirst. I ended up laughing about it to myself in the quiet hours before dawn, giving up on sleep entirely, and instead getting up to feed my elderly cat and give her a fresh bowl of, you guessed it, water. We are so much water. And what are we when it's freely given? When I invite Jesus to sit with me in centering prayer, which I have practiced lovingly with a group of beautiful witnesses here at All Saints, I say, come, Lord Jesus, speak to me. You who were human once, who thirsted as even I sometimes thirst in panic or fear, who thirsted to speak, bring us your holiest of water, the entire ocean of it. Come and speak with me. And then sometimes I hear it, a rush and a roar which fills the silence, the thrum of my own blood, the current that leads me to him. No thirst, no fear. took up the 2023 20, prayer challenge and tried to devote 40 days and 40 nights to prayer with no idea of where I would land. But here I stand, strengthened, heartened, hopeful, and committed to continuing a new prayer discipline. In his final moments on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. His earthly journey was ending amidst the brutal inhumanity of the crucifixion, the inconsolable grief of his mother, and the perceived abandonment by his father, but also amidst the forgiveness he sought for his executioners and the love he extended to one of the thieves who was experiencing the same cruel death he was. While on the cross, Jesus spoke of all of these things, but with his final breaths, he said, it is finished. And these are thought to be some of the most significant words to come from Jesus on the cross, speaking to his obedience unto death, his suffering, his grief, and also to the promise of our salvation. Jesus' ang anguish and surrender on the cross is where, at least to me, life begins. 
because in his dying, in his finishing, Jesus bestowed life itself to all of us for all of time through words of love and forgiveness spoken from a place of the greatest agony. On a cold January day in 2018, a family I did not know heard very similar words to this utterance of Jesus that it is finished, meaning the earthly journey of their loved one had come to its end, and it had. The person had died. But in his death, the person had so much more to give. In fact, he had life itself left to give. For from his death came a pair of lungs that just a few hours later was successfully transplanted into the dying body of my twin brother. What love, I thought, that through such suffering and the agony of loss came new life for my brother. And to me, that love everlasting was the door Jesus opened for us as he closed his eyes for the last time and shed his earthly body. Slightly more than three years later, in 2021, my twin reached his own, it is finished moment. And it is a moment for which I will always give thanks for this wonderful home of God known as All Saints Church and to Father Polycus. Shortly after my brother died, I was asked to make his corneas available for transplant, and time, I was told, was of the essence. But speaking of time, it couldn't have been more difficult. It couldn't have been more distressing. My brother had suffered. He had suffocated. And now, finally, it was finished, and he was at peace. And I wanted it to stay that way. But I also knew that if my brother could help somebody, either by his living or by his dying, he would, as he had been helped and given three additional years of earthly life through someone else's death. So it was only fitting that my brother's corneas be donated for transplant to help give sight to the blind. I don't accept the view that the words, it is finished, mean that it's all over and done with, completed. Jesus' death on the cross created the power and possibility of the gift of new life for all of us. I saw the power of love and new life in my brother's receiving donated lungs from someone who had just died. I felt the same thing in donating my brother's corneas when he had just died. I learned that the power of love and possibility of new life may be at its greatest when, at the end of our earthly journey, the words are spoken, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Words in silence. 
I personally find great comfort in that moment that exists without air, where words spoken and departures transpire in the quiet, that pause. At the beginning of this year, I experienced an unmooring. With the passing of my oldest and closest sibling, a brother, he was my deepest connection to my late parents. He was also their best friend, their advocate, and mine too. I had lost my will to communicate and speaking became so hard. Moments felt like a slow collision in a vacuum. This Lenten season and our centering prayers, these meditations, offered me safe space to be in silence. Centering welcomed me back to places of community in my heart that had been closed. During this time, I was also drawn back to the work of two writers that are guideposts to me, the poet Louise Gluck and the late Dr. Paul Kalanithi. Both writers meditate on anticipated and unknown grief, grief in the present moments, bonds of love, and what advocacy can bring in its loving sorrow when it shepherds us to peace. When it comes to Louise Gluck, I've taken refuge in a collection of poems called A Faithful and Virtuous Night. To me, this collection is a meditative journey along deep personal mourning and how it inverted it can feel in life as it runs parallel in our waking days and moments. How I've carried, and we've all carried, grief for both the living and the dying without an unknowable end is truly a deep and oftentimes painful expression of what makes love beautiful, trusting, and inexplicable, where we may find comfort in death. I'd like to take a moment to share with you a favorite poem from that collection. Once there was a horse, and on the horse there was a rider, how handsome they looked in the autumn sunlight, approaching a strange city. People thronged the streets and were called from the high windows. Old women sat among flower pots. But when you looked about for another rider and another horse, you looked in vain. My friend, said the animal, why not abandon me? Alone, you can find your way here. But to abandon you, said the other, would be to leave a part of myself behind. And how can I do that when I do not know which part you are? This poem illuminates to me that beautiful quiet moment when we don't know which part we are when love and hope arrives. I mentioned another author earlier, Dr. Paul Kalanithi. In his memoir published after his death, When Breath Becomes Air, he actually writes quite a bit about hope. 
These are deep sentiments from a dying man who is actually expecting his first child. He states that the word hope first appeared in English about a thousand years ago. I went and Googled that. And that its meaning is some combination of confidence and desire. Expanding on that, he shares from a humanely and terminally ill perspective that what we desire, life, is not what we can be confident about, death. This confidence is tenderly emphasized when he expresses love and hope. I will share your joy and sorrow till we've seen this journey through. Right now, in this moment, today, I feel love and hope. Love and hope is open to us as we exist, both as witness and partner, that allows our loving and complex hearts to meet what is here in Jesus' final verse as we embark upon this faithful and virtuous night. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Amen.